Well, Zechariah is important to us because it gives us the promises, the, it's the prophecy, the prediction that was put in place uh, that we're celebrating this morning in Palm Sunday. This is, the, this is the Sunday that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem to the shouts and the acclaim and the applause of the people welcoming him as their king. And it's also the Sunday that signals our entrance into Holy Week. That where we look at Jesus' last week uh, and his teaching and his time with his disciples before he's executed on Friday, Good Friday, and before he rises from the dead on Easter Sunday. And this text here, Zechariah 9, uh, the, uh, it gives us the reason, uh, predicts this very event, and gives us the reason uh, that it happened and, and helps us understand a lot of the promises that lie behind just what was going on when Jesus rode into town on a donkey that day. So let's look together at Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would magnify our love for you, our gratefulness for you, that you gave us these words of promise, and then you fulfilled them in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. So hold us in hope and nurture us in hope during our time this morning as we look at one of these ancient promises. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, where it is no virtue at all. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. No one can say it quite like G.K. Chesterton. Let me read this to you again. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. Chesterton was known as the Prince of Paradox. I'm no expert on grammar or on Chesterton. But I think that sentence probably falls into that category because what he's speaking to is the futility of hope when things are going well. The, the easiness of hope when things are easy. And the sheer courage of hope when times are difficult. And he was saying that you'll know the measure of your hope by just how it holds up when you're enduring suffering. Or when you're enduring loss or enduring pain. Because a hope that can withstand suffering is truly a, substan- a substantial hope. That is a hope to be reckoned with. And I'd love to just ask you this morning... What's the status of your hope? What does it look like for you? 
We've endured loss over the last several years. Loss in recent memory. Uh, we, uh, we've uh, endured a lot of change, and change can feel like a form of loss. Um, we're in the smack dab in the midst of uh, lots of cultural wars, and that can feel like ground shifting beneath our feet. That can, that can be difficult to not know where we fit in and where we belong in this place. And of course, uh, we have endured a pandemic over the last couple of years, and the pandemic represents a lot of loss, doesn't it? Some loss of people, some loved ones for us, the loss of what our lives looked like two years ago. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of all the reasons that remind us of our frailty and all the logical reasons for despair, what does your hope look like these days? Like when you raise your head and imagine your future, what do you see? It's important that we remember that these words of hope given to God's people through the prophet Zechariah, came to a people that had endured years and years and years of suffering. I mean, their losses were staggering. These are the survivors of the exile who had lost, lost many people. And they were returning to a capital city that had lain in ruins for decades. And in every way, they were really starting over. And these people didn't even have a king at the time. And yet here we are, while they're accounting for all the loss that they've endured, what we see is God speaking to them with words of hope. And I think, I think that this is what Chesterton was talking about. Hope in the face of all the reasons for despair. And the proposition of this text is that for God's people, our hope is all wrapped up In the coming of a king. Verse 9. Rejoice, rejoice, for your king is coming to you. But who is this king? What is he going to do? And how do I fit into this whole thing? I think those are the questions that the people would have been asking. And those are the questions that we'll ask together as we look at this text. Who is he? What will he do? And how do I fit into this whole story? First, who is he? Well, of course, he's talking about a king. But from the jump, what we see is a very unique king. Because, first, because it's odd to hear of a king coming to be with you. Usually, the way kings operate is they summon you to be with them. In fact, usually, if a king is coming to you, it's not a cause for joy. It's a cause for fear. Because, there, because there's business that needs to be done, and you're probably in trouble. Okay, That's what it usually means when a king is coming to you. But here, what we have is a king coming to his people, and it's a cause for joy, And he's coming to set up his rule amongst them. That's very unique. It's also unique in that that this king comes bearing gifts for the people. Usually a king receives gifts from the people. But this is a generous king. Look at this verse. It says, righteous and having salvation is he. These are the gifts that he's coming to give. And of course, uh, this verse is clearly talking about a king with high moral fiber someone with a strong character, and it's talking about his power to free them from oppression, something that you and I long for and anyone who, who is our king or our ruler. But these are not merely descriptions of a king. The, the way this verse is structured is actually talking to us about things the king is giving to his people, that, that the king gives you his righteousness. 
And the king gives you his salvation. And finally, he's unique because he's bringing a unique message. And, it's, and, and that is all tied up in what, um, in, in what this king is riding on when he comes to the city. He comes to the city riding on a donkey. Now, what's interesting is when a king comes to a city with, with, intent, with intent to attack that city, what's he riding on? He's riding on a war horse. But when a king comes to a city riding on a donkey, he's proclaiming a message before he even gets there that he comes with peaceful intent. He's, he's reassuring of his intent when he comes. Um, it, like King Solomon, who was also called the king of peace, the, the people enjoyed rich peace when he was, um, when he was uh, on the throne. He rode, in his, he rode a donkey in his coronation ceremony. And so these are the things that we celebrate when we celebrate Palm Sunday. We're celebrating the fulfillment of this promise when Jesus rode into Jerusalem because Jesus is the only person in history that fits this description. He's the unique king who instead of calling his people to summon up the religious behavior that's perfect enough to find themselves in his presence, what he does in his incarnation is he comes to be with his people. And when he comes, he comes offering his righteousness and his salvation freely for all those who express faith in him. And when he comes, he comes to proclaim peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you is what he'll say to his disciples just a couple days from now. So who is he? Jesus is the king. Now, there's always a difference, am I right, between what somebody promises and what they accomplish? Like, are these real promises that, 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 are, that, um, that the king is really ambitious for, or are these campaign promises? The question is, what will this king do? And that's what we're going to look at next. What will he do? Well, verse 10 is, is, uh, is about what this peace, about what this peace, this king will accomplish with his rule. What we see is this king is in the business of peacemaking. And there are a lot of different definitions of peace in this world. There are probably a lot of different understandings of peace, just what peace looks like in this very room. But how does this king define peace? Well, first, what we see is a final peace or an ultimate peace. It says all the instruments of war are cut off. Cut off. That's a supply chain term. We've read a lot about supply chains over the past couple of months. Am I right? This is a supply chain term. And what, it's, what it describes is a scenario where there's no more manufacturing of chariots or battle bows or war horses because the demand has simply dropped off. There's no need for them. And, and to understand this passage, we have to understand that God actually forbid the use of wep the weapons of war of, their, of the people's enemies um, uh, in Deuteronomy. You see it explicitly said in Deuteronomy, and he said, do not be afraid of them. This is Deuteronomy 17. When you go out to fight, he said, don't be afraid when you see all their war horses, and when you see all their chariots, and when you see an army that's bigger than yours, for the Lord your God fights with you. A couple weeks ago, we studied the story of David and Goliath, and that is exactly what was going on. When David slew Goliath using the weapon of a shepherd and not the Philistines' own weapons. But what we have here 
is that there's no more, there's no more creation of these weapons because the world will no longer be populated by enemies that, to fight with. Final, ultimate peace. And we also see that this is, he, he's describing a unifying peace. Here's what I want you to see. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel. That's the northern, that's the northern kingdom. The war, he will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. That's in Judah, the southern kingdom. And one of the saddest stories in the Bible is not about how God's people suffered at the hands of their enemies, but it's about how God's people suffered at the hands of each other. That, that, that as you read the Old Testament, you see almost constant fragmentation that exists amongst God's people. It's terribly sad. And of course, you see it in their journey in the wilderness as they snipe at each other and disagree and even take out their leaders. You see it in their conquest of the promised land in Joshua. I mean, this fragmentation of God's people all like, existed throughout time. And it came to a head just after the rule of Solomon when the kingdom... Listen... Listen to how profound this is. The kingdom of God's people was rended in two with a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. What will ever heal the fragmentation of God's people? Rallying around the king who came from them is what this passage tells us. That when Jesus rallies his people toward, each, toward himself... He, he, uh, he rallies them toward each other. The king God sends and the unifying peace he brings. So we see unifying peace, but we also see a universal peace. That the peace that was established amongst God's people emanates out and covers uh, the whole world. It results in a global peace. His rule speaks peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river, that's the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. That as God's people grow in the peace that God brings them through Jesus, a peace radiates out and covers the entire world. And so there is not one square inch of all of God's creation. And there is not one person that belongs to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that is not right now covered by the promise of a future peace. If you are wondering why hope today is not foolish, that's why. Because of the peace that God promises us. And usually we think of peace as simply the absence of conflict. That's a definition of peace that we often operate with. Usually it's about staying silent when something bothers you or is something is bothering somebody else that you love. Often our definition for peace is about keeping the status quo. And if that's the definition of peace that we operate with, then this promise won't be all that great to you. But God's understanding of peace is so much more robust and radiant than that. Because when God talks about peace, he uses a robust and radiant word. The word shalom. And shalom is not just talking about people not fighting anymore. Shalom means wholeness. It means being made complete. 
Shalom is the sum total of everything good and life-giving in the world. Shalom is the way God describes what his kingdom looks like. Shalom is is the essence of the robust life where where, where fear doesn't exist anymore and only confident goodness in relationship to yourself and with God. It's It's the way God summarizes what life with him looks like as he uses the word shalom. Don't we long for that? Isn't that what we long for? Don't most of our desires point to shalom, the desire for shalom? Lisa Sharon Harper says this. I love this. She says, shalom is what the kingdom of God smells like. That's what Adam and Eve enjoyed together with God. And it's what you and I are promised. That's the promise of peace that's before you as God's people, one for you by Jesus Christ. To say that is a grand promise puts it lightly. But this is the promise that belongs to you. But the next question should be, where does it come about? How does it come about? Where does this come from? There's a paradox. If there's a paradox for how we understand hope, there's often a paradox for how we understand peace. And it's this. We don't talk about it much, but it's a dominant narrative in our world and has been for quite some time. It's that the only way, the means of, the the only way of accomplishing peace is through the work of violence. Think about it. Wyatt Earp's gun was called the peacemaker. So was the B-36 bomber. Think about uh, some of our favorite superheroes. They were people devoted to peace, but they were often very violent. Batman gets darker and more violent every movie that comes out. And that is the playbook that many kings and rulers follow, is that they secure a peace for their people by doing violence on their enemies. But Jesus is not a normal king. He doesn't secure a peace for his people by doing violence on their enemies. He secures a peace for his people by inviting violence on himself. It's the profound movement of Jesus and the call for the peace that he promises. In a few days, we're going to get together on Friday night. And we're going to to remember, we're going to walk through the stories of what happened that day. And we're going to read passages, and we're going to sing about it. And some of the stuff that we look at that day is kind of hard to look at. I mean, it's a a graphic picture of suffering, and it can be gruesome and difficult. But we need to remember that when he did that, when he put himself in harm's way, he did it for you. He, he, to secure for you and for me the peace, the shalom that we long for. That those promises that existed centuries before that God gave to his people during their time of deep suffering were being honored when Jesus did what he did this week. So that's who he is. That's what he will do. But how do we fit into this whole story? How do we fit into this whole story? Well, look at verse 11. As for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set you free from the waterless pit. A waterless pit is a dry well. It's a description of where we are while we wait for our king. It's a dry well, and it was used as a kind of a temporary prison. 
Think of Joseph, if you're familiar with the story, think of Joseph and his brothers about to sell him into slavery. They threw him down in a dry well where they, where they held him as a temporary prison until that happened. That's the, the picture that we get here. And armies all over the land use these dry wells as temporary prisons for their prisoners of war. And so what, do you, what this passage is saying is that we are a type, while we wait for our king, we're in a type of prison, a prisoner of war. And that may not be death, but it's vulnerable, and it's languishing, and, uh, and it can feel hopeless, but for what? But for Jesus, because of the blood of his covenant commitment to you, the same blood that was shed on the cross, inaugurating a new covenant with you, transforms the state of our imprisonment. We are no longer prisoners of hope, but what are we prisoners of? It says in verse 12, I'm sorry, we're no longer prisoners of war, but we're not, now we're prisoners of hope is what it says in verse 12. And that is who we are. We're fools for hope. Our hope might not make sense, but we are bound to hope. You and I, as God's people belonging to Jesus, are bound by hope, bound to the covenant and hope, and held by hope. And you know what's remarkable to me about that Joseph story, the story about Joseph and his brothers, is that years later, after God has transformed a slave into being a ruler over many, he will look at his brothers and he will say, what you intended for evil when you did that, I intended for good. And the same God who by his grace transformed that slave into a ruler is right now working in his grace to transform you and me from prisoners of war to prisoners of hope. And you know, there's another, there's another paradox that runs deep within the celebration of Palm Sunday. And it's so profound, we can't not name it. And it's this. That many of the people who were on the road celebrating Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem were the very same people that were in the crowd calling for his crucifixion a few days later. And there's a lot that we could say about that. I mean, we could talk about cultural pressures. We could talk about the vacillating will of a crowd, the nature of a crowd and how a crowd works. But listen, I think it was all about hope and that the, the status of their hope. That they welcomed Jesus in when there is hope, and as soon as the tide turned against him, their hope vanished. And I say all that because in so many ways, we're in different places all around the room when we consider our faith and where we are with, with who Jesus is. And some of us right now feel like Jesus is very close to me. Whether your life looks easy or looks difficult, I know who Jesus is. And I only want to encourage that. But that's certainly not everybody here. Some of us are in a place where we have what feels like a more difficult relationship with our faith. Where it feels like we're in this waterless pit. That waterless pit might feel really familiar. And I, and I feel the lack of hope. And I feel my vulnerability. Where is Jesus? in all of this. And some of us are wondering about the church. There's been a lot of talk about the church lately. And there's been a lot of exposure of, of very difficult stories that have happened in the church. And some of us might even be victims of things that have happened there. 
And if that's you, I I want you to say how sorry I am. And that is my hope that Jesus is exposing that stain on the bride of Christ right now and purifying it. But if that's you right now, I want you to hear this. Please look at Jesus. Please look at this one who rode into town to the acclaim and the applause of many and then willingly gave all of that praise away in a lonely and terrible death for the sake of you. And then ask yourself the question, would any other king do that for me? If this really happened, and he really is alive right now, then I would tell you your hope is not in vain. It's not a foolish hope. In fact, it might just be the sturdiest thing in your life. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you who did all this for your people, you whose love we are still just coming to understand, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to trust and lead us in hope and guide us in faith. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.